Vsak podjetnik je zgodba za se. Imamo pa skupne točke. PKNP nudi drug pogled na tvoj podjetniški izziv. Ker nekdo že ve, tudi za tiste, ki nimate podjetniških problemov. Poslušanje je anonimno. Dobrodošli na Sidov podcast z Urošem Čimžarjem. Živjo, podjetnik sem že od svojih študentskih dni. Vedno pa so mi srečenja z bolj izkušenimi, pomagala biti še boljši. Zaradi tega še danes vsak pogovor je jelo kot priložno za učenje. Danes je z nami Emily Ross, ustanoviteljica in CEO podjetja Inkvine, kjer se ukvarjajo strateškim komuniciranjem za deep tech podjetja, ki želijo rasti globalno. Je so avtorica knjige Just Evil Enough, ki povdarja, kako se prebiješ čez hrub digitalnega marketinga in ustvariš profitabilne kampanje. Emily deluje tudi kot mentorica starta podjetnikom v programih kot so Mentoring for Scale, Sportstack Accelerator in Launchbox in je članica več svetovalnih odborov. So ustanovila je tudi Sportstack Ireland, neprofitno organizacijo, ki pozicionira Irsko kot hub za tehnologijo in inovacijo v športu. V drugi epizodi druge sezone se pogovarjamo o tem, kako ustvariti podjetje, ki služi tebi in ne obratno. O kulturi v podjetju, ki postavlja ljudi pred profit in o postavitvi posebnega poslovnega modela, tako imenovanega Billing by Value, Not per Hour. Kako to deluje v praksi, slišimo v tokratni epizodi podcasta PKNP. Hi Emily, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about the topic. Uh, of today's uh, discussion, because we, as entrepreneurs, we throw words around like uh, life-work balance or harmony or something like that. And it looks to me that maybe you are close to something like that. So I'm really curious to learn. But maybe let's start at the beginning. Let's say, so why and when have you decided to become an entrepreneur? Um, so... You know, it's funny, I studied science at university and um, I've always had a curious mindset. Um, but really, I, I, d- I didn't leave university with a big plan. I didn't want to change the world. I just really wanted to do interesting work. Um, and I found that I was working uh, in the the early, the late 90s when I started working first, I was in telco um, and this was back, wow, in, they were laying the 3G network. <laughs> we're now, you know, that 3G was just the future and now we're at 5G, you know, it's, so that's how long ago it was. But I remember working um, a, in that sector and the thing that I really enjoyed most back then was planning parties. Like, that's what I loved. Um, And so I found myself doing a lot of that during the course of my work. I'd actually found myself doing it, not because it was part of my job, but because I made it part of my job. Um, Perhaps subconsciously, but, you know, a big organization with hundreds of employees has summer parties and corporate events or product launches. And I sort of weaseled my way into that world and, and became very good at it. And so my first business, which I set up, uh, it was doing precisely that corporate events. And of course, my previous employer, um, a big uh, mobile phone company, became my first customer. So it was more about finding a job that I really enjoyed doing and making that job for me. So I think I've kind of always had that mindset about finding the work that you like doing the most. Um, And uh, yeah, so it was never really about, you know, building a big business or having lots of employees for me, it was always about the work. Um, and I think that's always sort of led my interest ever since then. 
And how does the story of Inkwine begin? Well, it's kind of a roundabout journey. Um, so um, after I sold my first business, not very well, I will have you know, because uh, I, I was quite young and I made lots of mistakes. Um, and why did you decide to sell it? I decided to sell it when uh, so the, the first recession hit Ireland. People didn't necessarily want to spend 100,000 euros on a party anymore. Um, and uh, the landscape was much had changed dramatically sort of around 2008. Um, I also, um, I'd had my first child by then. Um, and I remember having about two weeks maternity leave. Uh, that's all I'd given myself because I wasn't a very nice boss. Um, and, you know, it was tough. Um, but I still felt that I wanted meaning in my job. So I went to where I headed up uh, corporate fundraising for UNICEF in Ireland. And I think if you're not going to work for yourself and if you're going to work for another organization, at least you need to be motivated to want to get up in the morning. So I really enjoyed that role. And I did that for about three years. Um, and then I was I spent a good few years in the digital marketing space, helping companies grow internationally. And that was with an agency Um and I worked in technology and marketing for, you know, quite a long period of time. And then really, that's when I set up Inkfine. I was, it was about five years ago. I had two uh, children under the age of 10. Uh, and what I really wanted to do was have a, a, a job that gave me meaning, but that allowed me to at least see my children for more than, you know, a half an hour in the morning and a half an hour in the evening. Um, and that's sort of the, the origin story of Inkfine. Okay, so you have this need, let's say, to have a better life and to be more with your family. But uh, how do you then go from being an, an employee to actually starting a business and not, uh, let's say, lose a lot of uh, energy mm. uh, and also time in the beginning because starting a business is quite hard and uh, actually maybe you even have a less time for your family. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's a really good point. Um, so there's a really great Venn diagram from a chap called Bud Cadell um, who's, a, who's, who's really great content on, on LinkedIn if you ever go looking. Um, but he talks about um, the career challenge and in the, in the Venn diagram there's the things that you do well in one circle, there's the things that you can get paid for in another circle, and there's the things that give you meaning in another circle. And if you can make those overlap, and if you can find the center of those three things, something you do well, that you can get paid for, that gives you meaning, that should be your career compass. Um, and really, for me, it was first about you know, understanding those three things. And second of all, you know, I'm very driven. I don't necessarily just want to, to um, do a job that doesn't inspire me or motivate me. Um, and I had spent, you know, you know, over a decade um, at the C-suite for companies doing remarkable things. And just because I wanted to, you know, live outside of the capital or not work for a big company, I still wanted to do work that mattered and that had an impact and that would challenge me on a regular basis and those kind of jobs just weren't anywhere to be found um, and I, I guess just kind of like my very first business if the job didn't exist I would make it happen so I was very lucky uh, again I was really really lucky just like that very first company um, I when I set up 
my employer at the time was a, a health tech platform, global health tech platform, kind of like a trip advisor for healthcare. And I I'd led the marketing team there for about four years. And uh, the CEO there was uh, really, uh, he, was a, he was a really good uh, boss, actually. He was very supportive when I told him what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, actually, they were my first client when I went into consultancy mode. And he sort of allowed me to have this, um, you know, two days a week, uh, client number one which gave me a little bit of breathing space to pull in the other clients. Oh, so it was a really nice transition and actually gave you time, let's say, to... Yeah. And that's why I think it's all about, like, if you build really good relationships, if you do something that's really valuable, you know, your employer won't want to lose you. Um, and you you never can lose anything by just asking or suggesting, floating the idea. You know, I want to do more of this thing that you value. I want to do it... Um, and, you know, an employer... Uh, will prefer perhaps it might be more cost saving it might be cheaper less risk for them to lose an employee and gain a flexible resource um you know so uh it's all for me about finding the thing that you can do that drives value that also you get meaning from okay but then you chose let's say a type of business that's it's okay it's consultancy it's agency business let's say so mm -hmm. it's uh let's say we Actually, I co-founded one of the agencies before, yeah. uh, and it's a lot of, uh, let's say, grit, a lot of uh, grind. It's a grind. Yeah. It's, I, I, you either have two modes, let's say. So uh, you either have too few clients or too few good employees. Yeah. So, and you decided to do this business and to have more family life. So it still doesn't connect, uh, let's mm. say, uh, in my mind, let's say, how did you then achieve that? Okay, you were, let's say, uh, a consultant, basically, at the beginning, because you're probably the only one employed. Mm -hmm. I started out with one person, and now we're at eight, which is still very small. I mean, I spent, um, so a part of my journey had been head of client services at a digital agency, a really good one. And yeah, you're right. I, at, when I worked there, it was a grind. You know, we started at eight in the morning. You know, we often didn't leave before half seven, eight o'clock at night. You know, taking a lunch never really happened. Um, but actually, I really enjoyed the work. The work was challenging, stimulating, interesting. You know, we drove really good results. But I, if I remember that time, the thing that bothered me the most, there was two things. Yeah. One was that what I call frontline staff, the the account managers that are client facing, they got chewed up and spat out. They were literally wrung out. And it was like, you know, they were just worked so hard um, and so much was expected of them. Now, I know, you know, when you're in your early 20s and you're, you know, getting your experience in, you are expected to, you know, work hard, work long. Um, but I really felt that there wasn't a lot of, you know, work-life balance for them at all. I felt like that they would burn out. Um, and I also felt, so that was my one, one issue that, you know, it wasn't fair on the, on the junior members of the team. And also some of the clients were just, um, they weren't very nice. They weren't very nice. There was this kind of embattled sort of, well, some clients would be reluctant to tell you if you did well or praise you for fear that 
you might jack up your rates or you might, you know, they were always fighting, squabbling over hours. Um, so it was this constant battle. And I really felt that it could, it should be different. You know, you should only work for clients that trusted you and respected you. And also, if you had to give them some medicine that didn't taste nice, that they would understand that you're there to try and help. You know, so those those relationships, I really felt that you had to compromise for, for the scaling piece. So in order to try and increase your profitability, you had to sell more hours. You had to kind of squeeze the client. And it just didn't feel like a nice relationship in some cases. Okay, so you had uh, these two experiences, let's say these two insights from the before as a starting point. Uh, how did you take this insight and then turn it into your company right now? Let's say, so what did you di do differently then? Yeah, so, well, first of all, back to the value piece, right? So if you do something really, really well that other people can't do, so that's a key differentiator. Um, um, you know, it's a subjective, a com competitive advantage, but there's also subjective um, advantages too, and that's how you do business. So, you know, we we have a lot of values that we adhere to, and that's about, you know, having fun and always being transparent, always being accountable. If we make a mistake, you know, we admit it. But we, what we almost did was, I mean, bad business sense in a, sense, in a way, because we decided we didn't want to scale. And by scale, I mean the number of uh, people. I always said, you know, no more than, you know, 10 is max, you know, eight to 10 is perfect. And um, we certainly wanted to increase revenue. And we have done, you know, over the last five years, we've grown between 30 to 50% year on year in terms of revenue growth. Um, and, you know, and our, our margins have, have increased, you know, along with that. But, and that's because, you know, we, we increase the complexity of the challenges that we're solving and we increase the value that we're delivering. But and the, the value is actually recognized by the clients, let's say so. Yeah, I mean, I'm really upfront about it. When a client comes to us and says, we want you to do this job, I basically say, We only have five or six clients at any one time. We turn away two for every one that we say yes to. So I'm turning the, 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 the tables a little bit. Um, and we can afford to do that because we have low overheads and we don't have big expensive um, um, offices to pay for. Uh, we have a flexible working environment. We do rely on, you know, we have a core team and then we have a really trusted contractors and freelancers that we rely on when we need to scale up for projects. So we're lean. We're a very lean operation. And um, one of the things we have is the Mary Poppins protocol. And this is, if any, if you sat down with any, you know, investor or any bank manager and said, uh, we deliberately end relationships with customers, they'd think you were mad. Um, traditionally, agencies try to sign a retainer, increase the spend month on month. You know, the account managers are encouraged and reimbursed to sell more stuff, sell more hours. Um, we're like, no, we only stay for as long as we're needed. Give us a problem. We'll map it out. Start, middle and end. We'll tell you how long we think it's going to take us to solve the problem. And we're going to tell you how much we charge per month. And we want you to commit to a minimum of X number of months. Um, and then we don't really count the hours We'd always over deliver. You know, we might estimate it's going to take us maybe 80 hours a month for six months to do this thing. We might end up spending 200 hours in a particular month, 
But that's okay, because what we know is with this model, we have enough uh, revenue to cover our costs and our margins. Um, and that's what we need. So we're, we're moving away from that bill per hour conversation and now billing per value. So you really simplified business model, let's say. You just know, let's say, your bandwidth. Yeah, yeah. IT firm. You know how many concurrent clients you can have. Yeah. You know what you will charge them. And then this is the whole, let's say, administrative overhead there is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still track hours so that I'm aware of problem areas that are sucking up our time and attention. But it's an internal metric, not not one that we invoice out for. Um, And... You know, when COVID hit now, this did scare the crap out of me because I would normally have, you know, five or six projects on the go, three or four lined up, and we would onboard a new customer um, when an old project finished. And so we always have this kind of roadmap. And um, we generally try not to bring on more than one new client at a time because it's always, you know, heavy lifting at the start for projects. And we've done really interesting projects across, you know, um, AI and cybersecurity um, uh, lobbying campaigns, um, market penetration, product launches. Um, you know, we've we, every project is different. So at the start, there's always a little bit of onboarding as we try and get our heads around it. Um, but when COVID hit, three, because we had, you know, not a huge number of clients, you know, three of them overnight were like, okay, we need to pause all marketing, pause all spend, hit pause on our projects. Um, and I must admit, there was like a three-week period where I was worried because I was thinking, how are we going to pay our, how are we going to be payroll? Um, but actually, I just went back through every single project that we had looked at over the last 12 months, including the ones we turned down. And I, I filtered for the ones that I knew would be going accelerating because of COVID. So e-commerce, uh, anything to do with remote learning, anything to do with um schedule deliveries, marketplace selling. Um, and I went back to all of those and I said, do you want to reconsider that project? Um, and luckily we, we pulled in four new projects in one day. Um, and, and we actually did better in 2020 than we had done in 2019. Okay, but let's say, listening to you right now, uh, it seems to me the talking Mary Poppins protocol is, let's say, it's a kind of a spin. Let's say it's yeah, uh, something well, that, yes. that, that well, clients really understand, but it's done for you, let's say, for your benefit. There's two or three things there that's kind of interesting with Mary Poppins, right? So, as you know, Mary Poppins leaves the family um, they're, when they're happiest and they love her, but she realizes she's not needed anymore. And there's another family they're going to need her. So it's a lovely, uh, it's a lovely metaphor. Um, hand on heart, I invented the Mary Poppins protocol initially because and this is a terrible thing to say but I get bored easily and once I've solved a big hairy audacious problem I want to move on to a new problem um, and at, a, at an agency if you have the same client for two or three years and you're just doing the same old thing more email marketing more AdWords, more blog posts for me all the novelty is gone and you know novelty is what interests a certain type of person so the Mary Poppins protocol is a very selfish and not exactly strategic way of doing business, but it does have one very smart advantage, which is that when a client sees it, they automatically feel relieved and reassured that they're not getting into an expensive financial engagement that has no end point. 
And what I found is some of our clients do a project and, and we say it's going to take six months. And at the end of six months, we find another project and we do no, another six months and another six months. So that we have some clients that we've worked with for more than three years because we keep finding projects to do. We like the cut of their jib. They like working with us and we keep finding new things to solve, to deliver value. But it also probably increases the trust at the beginning because let's say there's no fear of retainers, there's no fear of uh, overbilling yeah. uh, and so on. So yeah, it's really smart in this way. Uh, Thank so, you. No, look, how we dealt with it, we closed down the agency uh, because mm-hmm. me personally, let's say, I was also getting bored quite easily. And for me, we, we did have different clients and different projects, but let's say I was... It was like Groundhog Day. I was explaining the same stuff, okay, to different people, but it was yeah. hearing me over and over again. And it's it's not time consuming. It's let's say it it brings you down. Let's say so. Yeah, there's it no, is. It's, it's a grind. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a network here for entrepreneurs in Dublin, called, well, in, in Ireland, called Startup Grind. Um, and it's it's about talking about the grind of being in a startup. Being an entrepreneur, seventy um, percent of it can be really tiring at min, and 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 yeah, also that client education piece in the agency side. Depending on on who you work with, there's so much explaining to do, you know, to try and manage people's expectations and try and yeah. help them make informed decisions about you know where their time and money should go for sure. And how did you avoid that? I think we're very lucky. Uh, we're very lucky in that we have positioned ourselves as a communications partner for deep tech firms. So if you work with deep tech firms, they're already very, you know, uh, analytically minded, data driven, um, and they take a very realistic approach to the work. Um, and we're also very data driven. And so we're already speaking the same language. The uh, flip side of this is Sometimes I call our team dumb translators and, and I, I'm not actually insulting them. It's a compliment. Our clients have, you know, PhDs in AI or, you know, they're working at the cutting edge of um, connected medical devices or autonomous vehicles. And their language, their fluency is very, um, uh, it's complicated. They have a very hard time simplifying you know, coming up with an elevator pitch, coming up with simple core comms. So we take all of that complexity. Of course, because they they understand all the consequences and they know they want to be really exact yeah. in their language, not to misspoke. That's it. And what we're really good at is like boiling all of that complexity down and creating messaging that is really simple and clear and persuasive. Um, and most of our team like our, our skill is with words and those words could be anywhere. They could be on a video script. They could be on a radio ad. They could be on a press release. They could be on a recruitment job post. Uh, it could be on an investor deck. It could be on, um, you know, a sales leave behind or a webinar questions, but finding the right words to allow your business to grow is what we do. And that's a big magic paintbrush that loads of companies need. Um, and we call it comms craft. 
it's kind of the word we cobble together. And actually, if you if you go to Google and type in what is Comscraft, the definition, the snippet that appears on the top of search comes from Inkvine, which is another little handy SEO trick that we play sometimes. But um, yes, that and that that ability to paint with words is is what we do for technology firms that perhaps tie themselves up in knots when they try and do it for themselves. Okay, but this ability, let's say, to play with words, uh, to craft the really good message, this is actually needed everywhere. Oh, yeah. But you decided to go in tech. Uh, why? And why? What, did, what, does, what did this allow you to do, let's say? I think I've always just been fascinated with the future. And technology is the road to the future. All through my teens, and this is because my big brother influenced me greatly, I was fascinated with um cyberpunk and science fiction um you know what's possible in the future um i've always been obsessed with where technology is going to take us and it's been super interesting seeing um even just in the last decade uh, where where we're going with technology um it is so exciting it is so interesting um and Again, you know, what you're passionate about, what you're interested in, you're always going to find it easier to, to stay up to date and, and, and be in, in the thick of it. But yeah, and we have been in the thick of it. We have, we've worked with um, astrophysicists and um, cybersecurity specialists, um, uh, AI 3D artists for game design. Like all of it's just super cool. Okay, but I was also alluding a little bit to specialization. Let's say you specialized on the type of client. And you said that you, okay, you have the same number of clients, but you managed to increase your margin. This, these two are probably connected in my mind, let's say, because you are more specialized. You are actually probably sought after in this space because of referrals. Yeah. Uh, or am I? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, almost all of our, it's funny, <laughs> we help companies to grow and we, you know, we're very good at search engine optimization and we're very good at certain types of social media, but Inkfine doesn't have time to do any of that for ourselves. And we don't need to because, again, because we don't need a, you know, we, you ever get those emails from whatever types of platforms going, would you like a hundred leads a month? And I'm like, no, I only need 10 a year um, and actually all of those are people that have either you know worked at a place and been exposed to our services and then moved somewhere else or um, I mean I do um, a good bit of mentoring and networking and that's probably one of the ways that we get to talk about the work that we do and um, we I'm on the I'm on the advisory board for a, a VC fund and um and I run a marketing accelerator for them um, every so often. And that's a really great way to, to meet incredibly interesting technology startups that are funded. Um, and also I'm on the advisory board for South by Southwest Pitch, which is where startups from all over the world come and pitch for their uh, pitch to investors. That really gives me an incredible overview of trends. Um, getting to 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 see all of these applications is fascinating, um, and yeah, and at the same time, I'm in a great little country. Ireland is small, but it has a, a very high number of early stage startups and a and a great network, uh, and so that really helps too. Okay, so 
you mentioned, uh, let's say, at the beginning of our conversation, that you are now eight, uh, let's say, and the theme is the maximum. Why? And when did you decide? Somebody a while ago, one of my mentors was asking me, you know, what future do you want? What's your end goal? Um, and my very simplistic answer was always to do good work for people I like uh, and to get paid well for it. Um, and and I kind of got, I wouldn't say sneered at a little bit, but I was sort of, I got a little sort of a cynical response to that because it is very simplistic and it's perhaps a little bit naive. Um, and uh, but one of the things I realized from having worked at big companies too, is that after a certain point, a certain number of bodies, uh, you become more of a manager rather than a, a doer. And my role as strategist is my happy place. I get to swoop in, chew the problem, come up with ideas, and then bring in my A-team to help execute. Um, and if you grow and scale, you need to have seniors, mid-level, juniors. You need to start, you know, um, really helping people progress, guide. You need to create a, a, a culture of career progression. And we have done, we're, we're always encouraging people on the team to, to grow. But what I don't want to do is to have to manage lots of people because managing people is hard. I have people yeah. that I work with that manage themselves because they're amazing and they're all really, really good at what they've chosen to do. And they work at Inkfine because of the, the, the rewarding nature of the work um, and the flexibility to work in a manner that suits them. That's why we have a lot of parents at Inkvine, um, because we do have that flexibility. Oh, we have one really nice thing that I, so we have a bunch of different things. We have um, Mary Poppins Protocol. Uh, we yeah. have Namdam, which is how we pick our clients. Uh, am I allowed to swear a little bit? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so Namdam stands for no assholes, money doesn't actually matter. So when we're picking clients, if they send out any kind of signals that kind of make us a bit nervous, we'll, we'll might do a one day workshop with them first, just to double check the Nam Dam rule. But if they show any signs of fuckwittery or assholeness, we won't work with them. So there's Nam Dam that's, that helps protect us. Um, and then we also have flow Friday. So flow Friday is a day where no one has meetings internal or external. And our out of office is on and we work in a state of flow. So no interruptions. Okay. So you actually crafted a working place, let's say working environment that uh, some experts in their field really appreciate probably. Yeah, for sure. Flexibility, flow Friday, um, nice clients, interesting work well paid it does sound okay and look we have bad days and we have bad weeks and there's a you know there's definitely months where we're working more than we want to and then there's months where we might be working less than we'd prefer to but really it's a people first people first environment and i have a, a manifesto on the website and it says in black and white um people family life comes before revenue every single time yeah I really respect that. You are mentioning, let's say, if the organization grow, let's say, it's my personal observation, or I stole it somewhere. I really <laughs> don't remember right now, but uh, that 
organization grow, let's say, where you add more and more people, there's a lot of emergent properties, let's say, and most of them are negative. And a lot of stuff that we as entrepreneurs, as then even as a manager discuss, is actually how to combat these negative emergent properties of growing organization. Mm. You put uh, more than 10 people in a team or let's say there's more than 200 people and so on. And there's a lot of structures, a lot of uh, principles that actually just battle this negative, let's say, aspect of large organizations. So Yeah, it's friction. Like the friction of scaling is incredibly difficult. Um, and it's it's all to do with operations and logistics of, you know, when you've got less than a dozen people, information doesn't fall between the cracks. We all know each other inside out. You can, you know, hold all the information um, and, and see the entire picture without having to, to challenge yourself too much. You don't need massive amounts of um, process and procedure in order to be efficient and functional. So there's this sweet spot, this lean kind of um, window where if you have the right mix of people and services and clients, you can deliver really meaningful work with, a, with very little of that operational requirement and process in order to make the business work effectively and efficiently. Um, and I think as soon as you start getting above a dozen people, you now have to start breaking into teams and now you need more processes. Yeah. And what's your answer now to somebody uh, who tells you, okay, but you should grow, you should have a larger business, you, should, you could earn so much more money? Yeah, one of my mentors did kind of float that by me. Um, and... You know, actually, when I did my, uh, I did a master's um, a, a few years ago uh, when I was working at the health tech platform and I did it at nighttime and um, I did my my dissertation and when I was doing it, I actually stumbled across something that I thought would actually make a really good product, like a product I could sell, a product that could scale. Um, and I, I instantly stopped doing my thesis on it and because it wouldn't be a commercial idea then if I did it for the university. So I put a pin in it, did my thesis on something else, and then I took it out again. And I thought to myself, when I set up Inkfine, I'll put aside one day a week and I'll start to tease out this product idea. And I realized very quickly that, yes, I could do it. And yes, it could be a scalable business, a uh, a product-based business, not a services-based business. And then I realized that I could probably kiss the next 10 years of my life goodbye. And like I said, I had two kids under the age of of uh, 10. Now I have a, an amazing husband who is a teacher. So he has a lot of flexible, well, he's afternoons and weekends. So he does a huge amount of, you know, the, the parenting and he's been really supportive, especially because I travel a lot. Um, uh, but I knew that I didn't want to sacrifice that decade for this product idea. Um, and so I very deliberately consciously chose not to do that life. Now, I fundamentally believe that it is possible to start a product-based scalable business without having to scrub a decade, without having to give your all to it. I do believe it's possible, but it requires, uh, first of all, experience. You, you know, you, you, a first-time entrepreneur is not going to have the experience required to be disciplined enough um, to scale a business uh, while also having 
you know, some little time for yourself, some time for life. And, you know, I could be wrong. People will say, no, it's not possible. You either have to like go all in and bleed from the eyeballs. That's the whole Gary V kind of startup mentality. I don't, I don't subscribe to that at all. I have seen some fantastic entrepreneurs, mostly female entrepreneurs who have managed to scale businesses um, and to do so while also having a life. And I think it just requires discipline. If, if I can, if I can uh, let's see, uh, a bit on my own drum a little bit, let's say. Uh, I have a rule that I don't have email on my phone. Let's say I don't, I don't check email over weekends and so on. Very good. And I, I did manage, and this is for the last 10, 15 years, and I did manage to bring our startup to the IPO on Stock Exchange. Well done. A good team. Yeah. But it's done. Well done. And I'm not a female, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done. And that's what I love to see because you know what? I think entrepreneurs are coming to the table thinking that, oh, if you're not pulling in a hundred hours a week, you're not trying hard enough. Like work smart, not long. And it's about the people you surround yourself with. It's about the work practices, but above all else. And I have not been, you know, I made my mistakes the hard way. It's about being disciplined enough to give yourself the time because this is a marathon not a sprint yeah I, i'm really impressed by your decision making process let's say so you mentioned two, two or three things let's say that you're doing also apart from being fine let's say you're on the board of uh, a few mm. uh, let's say a few organizations how and when you decide let's say to take to say yes to an opportunity and to say no because i believe that opportunity come across your desk quite regularly. So when you say, how, what, what are you looking at when the opportunity presents itself? Yeah. So one of my personal challenges is to learn to say no more. I've gotten much better at it in the last five years, but I definitely am a yes person and I get excited about things. And I'm like, yes, oh, definitely. Yes, yes, yes. Um, because I am always fascinated by you know, what people are doing and what's new. And I also, like, I, I mentor a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs as well. And I get a huge amount of personal satisfaction out of helping and advising um, people on their journey, whether it's a career journey or whether it's um, a business journey. Um, but how do I know what, you know, th something comes across my way and I weigh up what value I have to give for them, like, is it going to be useful? How much time is it going to take uh, really and truly? Um, and then um, is it going to allow me to grow? So those are the kind of the, 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 the three main questions. But I have to say, um, a lot of it is gut, which is a terrible answer because it got, you know, you have to know the difference between what is subconscious bias and what is actually gut instinct. But I, I generally tend to trust my gut. Um, the, I'm doing an interesting thing uh, towards the end of the year. There's a great sports tech accelerator uh, and I'll be uh, mentoring and lecturing at that. I'm really interested in sports tech. Um, but yeah, and it, it's about clearing out a little bit of bandwidth in my life to allow that to happen. We also say yes to at least one pro bono project a year. So one of our five is uh, a project we'll take on for for at no cost. Um, and that's generally can be sometimes outside of tech completely. Um, but it's also really nice for us to be able to use our powers for good and, you know, to get experience in other areas. Yeah, you mentioned this gut instinct. Let's say it's something uh, 
it's also served me quite well. I believe my current wife, let's say, uh, asked me, okay, why, why are we together? And I said, because I feel like it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but it was really, I don't know how to say, it was, it was not, uh, let's say I broke some of my personal rules, uh, let's say, uh, because uh, she was an employee uh, in, our com- in our company for two years before. Uh, we actually yeah. had anything and this was like a big no-no uh, for me personally and so on so i want to say it was one of my best mistakes well, let me take my magic word wand yeah. here and fix what you just said <laughs> okay so, <laughs> so i think what you're saying is you knew it was right yeah, it felt because right. it felt right yeah. because it so just it, was and it, it was uh, yeah. let's say there you go let's say going through all my logic all my rules and so on and just uh let's say doing what feels right. And uh, I also use this, let's say, also in business sometimes and so on. So it is something to be said uh, about this experience and this feeling that we should listen also to, to do and especially what not to do. Let's say I see a lot of uh, unhappy people in careers that yeah. from, the out- from the outside in looks quite successful, Yeah, but they're really unhappy. Yeah. So there's a really interesting thing here about your, your gut um, and this is actually your actual, your actual intestines, your, your microbiome um, uh, and your gut, it, more and more science is showing that, you know, we process a lot of our feelings and our emotions, not just in our head, but also in our, in our gut and our gut bacteria is really, really important. Uh, and you can actually have uh, illnesses that will, you know, lead to depression and it can be an imbalance in your in your gut bacteria. So I think there's a whole science there that's being, that's emerging about, you know, what your gut can actually tell you uh, if you're being very, very literal. Um, but also intuition um, and, and ability to solve pro- certain types of problem solving. Um, we think of it as being gut or, you know, just instinct, but really it is the the layering of the experiences that we've had for many, many years. So if a, if a 21 year old is saying, I'm going to trust my gut here and, you know, buy this thing or make this job decision, their gut probably isn't as reliable as somebody who's more experienced. Um, it's just a way of saying that your layers of experience are allowing you without conscious decision-making protocols to make a decision. So I think, yeah, gut, backed up by experience is going to steer you right. And in terms of people who've made career decisions, like one of the things that AI is going to do is completely transform the careers of the future. So people who are going to university now and making decisions going, oh, you know, I want to have a good job with a pension. Those decisions are completely bogus because those jobs aren't going to exist in 10 years time. And so really the only way that people are going to find a career that is going to be sustainable is to, well, I think it's inevitable that they're going to need to understand computer science. But also I feel like the things that AI aren't going to bring, um, ethics, philosophy, creativity, art, um, what people would have in the past called soft skills, these are so critically important. And so if you can combine the, the, the soft skills, which are really, really hard to learn well, and a really good understanding of computer science, I think you're pretty much bulletproof for careers yeah but you have to learn to listen to yourself <laughs> i'll try i'll try to sum up a little bit let's say so a way how to create a business let's say around your life not the other way around that the business craft your life is in a way let's say to find 
where you provide value, because this is what you did. Then decide on your personal values, let's say what's important to you, and really defend them yes. against everything that uh, comes across and so on. And then some of these decisions, like your Mary Poppins protocol, you can actually turn them around and again, let's say, present as a value to the clients and so on. And this actually makes you unique because most of the people don't do that because most of them follow the same path, the same advices on how to grow. Is this good? Yeah, I think that's, it's really lovely to hear it summarized from the outside. Um, it really sort of makes me really looking, seeing it with your eyes makes me incredibly proud of what we've done. Although I, I have to admit, you know, at the start, I will say hands up, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. All I knew is I wanted it, I wanted to do work that had meaning and I wanted it on my terms. Um, so I'm 42 now. I was 36, 37 when I set up, 36 when I set up Inkfine. It wasn't my first rodeo. You know, I had, I'd had over a decade of working for big companies and I had my first experience, my first business I set up when I was 27. And like I said, I made all of the mistakes. Um, but yeah, I think I definitely wanted to build something that for this phase of my life fit. Um, I have no idea what the future will, will bring me, especially as the, the kids get older. Um, I would probably want to throw myself more into, into the mix um, and maybe scale a business. But again, always under my own terms, I suspect. Um, and actually, you know, I think any... Anybody listening that has a business or that is building a brand or building a product, it's not hard to create that unique story around your business and it will really stand to you. Finding the little things that give you meaning. Um, we, have a, we have a sunshine clause. You probably don't need that um, in Slovenia because uh, your weather is much nicer than ours. But in, in, in our world, in Inkfine, if it's a sunny afternoon, which is rare, you get to pull the, the sunshine clause out, which means if you've no meetings on, you can just pack up and go and take the day off. And you might do your work in the evening or at the weekend, because if the sunshine is rare, you want to go out and be in the sun. So, you know, I'm pulling, I'm invoking the sunshine clause, I'm getting out of the office and that's fine. So little things like that, you give them a nice name, you actually put them in your manifesto and they make you different and unique and allow you to stand out a bit. And that's always good. Emily. I believe that uh, it's good to end with the sunshine, let's say. So I would like to thank all our listeners, let's say, that stay with us till the end. And especially thank you uh, for explaining in so simple and clear terms how to really build a business that uh, makes your life better. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for asking such lovely questions. And uh, thanks for having me. Sipodjetnica, podjetnik, želiš rasti hitre, a ne viš točno kako? Pride na kava, da skupaj pogledamo, kdo vsi doježe rešil podoben podjetniški problem. Piši nam na podcast na sit.si ali nas najdi na www.cehed.si Podcast.p, kjer deljenje izkušen omogoča rast.